you please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We're resuming our series in this marvelous letter to the Hebrews today, Hebrews chapter 7. As you turn there, I just would like to remind you one more time of our congregational prayer service this evening at 6 p.m. Encourage all of you to be there, members of ECC especially. Uh, we will have an opportunity to meet our new pastoral apprentices this evening and to pray for them, Kwesi uh, and Jeevan, as they begin their journey here at ECC. So if, with that, please be there tonight, and if you would pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace this morning? Speak to us through your word. Show us your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only hope for sinners, by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I had a lifelong goal that I never thought would be fulfilled, completed this summer. Uh, I really didn't think this was possible, but it actually happened. My daughters and I learned how to solve a Rubik's Cube. And, you know, the Rubik's Cube is a puzzle that's quite complex. Uh, it has uh, over 40 quintillion different patterns, I am told. And in the past, I've tried and tried. You know, I've tried looking at th videos on YouTube, tried a few different things. And somehow it just never, ever worked out. What was the difference this summer? Well, the difference was I had a friend named Andy who was an expert at solving the cube. Not only could he solve it very fast without even looking, but he was also good at teaching others how to solve the cube. And so my daughters and I you know, had a few sit-down sessions with Andy where he showed us you have to do this first, that's how you solve the first layer, and then you have to do this, and then voila. And very soon, we were doing it ourselves. I'm down to three minutes now, my daughters are down to one. It's a fun puzzle, but it can be very frustrating if you don't know how. And that's sometimes how we feel when we come to our Bibles, isn't it? Uh, we come to passages of Scripture, especially passages in the Old Testament, uh, texts like Genesis 14, which uh, was read earlier by Sister Rosa, or we come to Psalm 110, which we just sang, and it feels like a Rubik's Cube. It, it looks like, well, there's, there's some way to put this all together, but I just don't know how, and because I don't know how, I can feel frustrated and not really delighted and not really have the delight that the Lord wants me to have. Well, praise God. We have expert assistance. Not Aubrey, but the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is an expert in reading the Bible, in reading the Old Testament. And he not only solves the puzzle for us, he also shows us how the puzzle is solved. And when the puzzle is solved we see a portrait, a, a beautiful, glorious portrait on every side, a portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great king and our great high priest, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And he is the priest that you and I so desperately need. We need the puzzle of Scripture to show us, to be resolved, and to show us the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, because He is our only hope. And so I pray this morning as we walk through the steps of the puzzle, and as we finally look at our Lord Jesus in His office as a perfect priest, that you and I would hear His call to draw near to Him in faith, and to find the grace that we need to help us. So just some reminders for you. We are picking up in Hebrews after a few months now. This letter, this was an originally a sermon preached by a concerned pastor to a congregation of Christians 
who had grown weary. They were facing all kinds of suffering and affliction. Uh, there was persecution and pressure upon them to renounce their faith. And the trials of this life ha had come in and scrambled their Rubik's Cube so that the, the pattern didn't make sense anymore. And, and now they were beginning to drift. Some of them were tempted to go back, to abandon their faith in Christ, and to go back to the old covenant system, to the priests and the temple and the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And the author wants to call them away from that. He wants to warn them against abandoning Jesus and call them back to the Lord Jesus. And he does so. He encourages them and comforts them encourages them to keep pressing on by taking them into one of the deepest biblical and theological studies of our Lord Jesus Christ, of what we call Christology. And he shows them how Jesus fulfills all of God's promises in the Old Testament. Why so much doctrine and study about Christ? Well, it's because looking at Jesus is the greatest source of comfort in the Christian life and the greatest source of motivation to keep going forward in the Christian life. So we've seen from the beginning of Hebrews, he presents Christ as God the Son, who was eternally God, superior to the angels, who took on flesh, died in our place for our sins, fulfills the Old Testament, and he acts as our high priest. We've seen that theme again and again. He is the high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is our high priest who, through whom we draw near. Well, now in chapters 7 to 10, we're getting into the meat of it, quite literally. As he takes us into the study to show us how Jesus fulfills the sacrifices, the law, the covenant the priesthood, the temple. And really, if we look at these chapters, it could be summarized in three words. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And so we begin in chapter 7, where he talks about how Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. It's the moment many of you have been waiting for. He's... he's uh, mentioned Melchizedek three times so far in the letter, right? Three times there's been this little teaser about Melchizedek. One time he said, I want to talk to you about Melchizedek, but you're not ready. You need milk and not meat. Well, now we're finally here. Some of you, a couple of you told me, oh, I'm excited. We're going to go learn about Melchizedek. Here's the meat, all right? Served up at last after several appetizers along the way. Some of you might look at Melchizedek and feel puzzled. Well, this morning, we're going to do a few steps through the puzzle, and it's going to be solved. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through this passage answering four questions. All right? We look at four questions as we look in this text to know what it means that Jesus is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek and why that's so crucial for us. So first question, first step in the puzzle, first layer of the cube, here we go. Who was Melchizedek? Right? Who was Melchizedek? Look at verses 1 to 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So the author takes us back there to this incident in Genesis 14, which we heard read just earlier, which kind of feels like an obscure incident in the Old Testament, but it's going to be very, very important for our understanding of Christ. You see, in Genesis 14, there's this war that you see. Uh, there were five kings battling against four kings, and somehow in the middle of this war, Abraham's nephew named Lot gets captured 
and, and taken away as a captive. And so Abraham is now going to enter the war to rescue his kinsmen. And as you read the story, he takes 318 of his trained men. These are the Navy SEALs. These are the commandos of the ancient world. They're highly trained, 318 guys. And Abraham takes them with him like mercenaries. They go in and they defeat the enemies. And Abraham rescues Lot. And then as he's coming back, all of a sudden, this happens. Verse 18 of Genesis 14. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So just three verses. And you see this character named Melchizedek. He comes on the scene quickly, and then boom, he's gone. And then you don't see him again for another thousand years until all of a sudden he's mentioned in Psalm 110 by David. So the author wants us to pay attention to Genesis 14 and to see what it says about who this guy is. Who is Melchizedek? What does he say? He says, look, 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 at, look at whom Abraham met. He, Melchizedek is king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. And his name itself, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. Melech means king. Sedek means righteousness. He is king of righteousness. And he's king of Salem, which Salem, the word Salem, comes from Shalom, you all know, or Salam even, which means peace. He's king of peace. So this guy is a king in the ancient world. Well, not only is he a king, he's also priest of God Most High. And for the author of Hebrews and for us, there's a lot of significance in that. Because you see, in the Old Testament, according to God's law, which was given later, kingship and priesthood were two separate offices. You couldn't merge both of them. Kings descended from Judah, priests descended from Levi. And you're not supposed to merge the kingship with the priesthood. In fact, that's what Saul attempted to do. And God judged him and destroyed him for seeking to do that, for seeking to take the priestly responsibilities upon himself. Later, there was another king in the Old Testament, Uzziah, who tried to offer sacrifice and God struck him with leprosy. And King David, of course, knows this. He's like, yes, priesthood and kingship, separate, separate. But one day he's having his morning devotions He's thinking about biblical revelation and the Holy Spirit begins to move in him and he begins to pen Psalm 110 and all of a sudden he realizes, whoops, wait, there is one person in the Old Testament, in God's word, who's both a king and a priest. Who is that? Melchizedek. And he remembers Melchizedek from Genesis 14. And so as David writes Psalm 110, this is a messianic psalm. He is speaking of one who is coming, who would be his son, the son of David, but who would also be his Lord. That's why he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And in the same psalm, in verse 4, he says, the Lord has sworn to this individual and shall not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the kingship and priesthood were united in this individual, in Melchizedek, in Genesis 14, which is very unusual. Then go on and see what the author says. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And the author is teaching us something here. He's teaching us to pay attention to the details of the text, the details of Scripture, including the silences of Scripture. Now, you've got to be careful when you're reading just, you know, if you just notice a silence about something, not to make a big deal out of it. But if it's the case that there is frequently, you're expecting something else because the scripture always says something else, and then all of a sudden there's silence, then there's a hint, isn't there? That there's something that you should notice. You know, one teacher talks about a book by Sherlock, the book about Sherlock Holmes, 
uh, and his adventure, it's called The Silver Blaze. And in that story, someone commits a crime, and Sherlock Holmes is investigating, and what he finds is that the dog would normally bark at night if anyone visited. But on the night that the crime was committed, the dog was silent. Well, what does that mean? That means that whoever committed this crime is someone that the dog is familiar with. The silence is telling you something because there is no sound. Well, if you read the book of Genesis, this silence here about Melchizedek is telling you something. Because you see, as you read the Old Testament, especially as you read the book of Genesis, you'll see again and again that every person, over and over, notice this pattern, you know to whom they were born, and then you know when they died. Their death is recorded. Their birth is recorded, and their death is recorded. Their genealogies are recorded. Throughout Genesis, you'll see again, these are the generations of, and you'll see repeated genealogies in the book. Well, then it ought to strike us as extremely unusual when you come to Genesis 14, and here's this guy, he just shows up, he's a king, and he's a priest, his birth isn't recorded, his mom and dad's names aren't recorded, his death isn't recorded, neither the beginning or the end of his life is recorded, he doesn't have any of that, he just shows up, three verses, and you know nothing more about him. And the author wants us to see great significance in that. He's a priest, but we don't know his genealogy. He's a king, but we don't know what line he descended from. And his death isn't there in the story. It's like in the, in the story of Genesis, Melchizedek shows up as a king priest, and his priesthood, his kingship just continue. Every other king... Every other priest in the Old Testament, you know when they were born, and you know when they died. Not so for Melchizedek. His priesthood continues. And so the author here is teaching us how to read our Bibles, right? And he's teaching us something about scriptures, that the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures for us. Every word is inspired. The details of Scripture are inspired. Even the silences of Scripture are inspired by God. And, and this ought to teach us to come to Scripture with open hearts and a willing mind to pay attention to the details of the text in our Bible reading as we listen to preaching, to work hard to see how all of the Scripture fits and points us to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some people look at Melchizedek and says, Ah, look, he is... Without beginning of days, nor end of life, he continues as a priest forever. This must be the pre-incarnate Christ. Or they'll say, some people think this is some kind of a divine or angelic being. Now, I'm not convinced of either of those proposals. Uh, I don't view him that way. Particularly the way he speaks about him, without father, without mother, or genealogy. Of course, we know Jesus' genealogy later, right? And if he is the pre-incarnate Christ, it doesn't make sense to speak of him this way. Notice what he says after that. He says, without father, without mother, or genealogy, neither ha having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He doesn't say he is the pre-incarnate Son of God. He resembles the Son of God. He is made to resemble the Son of God, and he continues a priest forever. So Melchizedek, the details of his life, who he is, has been shaped by God in such a way that he resembles the Son of God. He provides a pattern and a picture of one who will come, who is just like him, even greater than him. And this, in our study of the Bible, this way of understanding the Scripture, as I've told you before, we've looked at this in Hebrews before, and it becomes very important in Hebrews 7 to 10 especially, this way of reading the Bible is called typology. Typology, all right? Typology is this phenomenon in Scripture where as you read the Bible, certain events, certain persons, certain institutions are all forming a pattern. This is God's inspired pattern. God has worked and moved in history in such a way that persons, events, institutions all function as a pattern 
as pointers, as previews, pointing us forward to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfills those patterns. Right? So you think of the Exodus event. The Exodus, as God delivers his people from slavery, this is meant to point forward to and show us Jesus' deliverance of his people from slavery to sin. Or you think of King David, a person. Again, he is a pointer, a preview. His life is a pattern pointing forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. His, David's greater son who fulfills the kingship. And like that, we see several different things. The sacrifices are meant to point us forward to Jesus' perfect sacrifice by which he cleanses people once and for all. We'll see that over the next few weeks. That's what Melchizedek is. He's a pattern or a type who points forward to someone greater. His story is recorded in such a way and shaped in such a way to resemble the Son of God, to point us to this greater king-priest who would come, who would be a priest not on the basis of genealogical descent, but by divine appointment, and who would remain as a king and priest forever. So the first layer of our Melchizedekian Rubik's Cube has been solved. The first question has been answered. Who was Melchizedek? He was a priest king who is very significant because his appearance in Scripture gives a pattern of another priest king who would come. Next question. What's so great about Melchizedek? This is the next step in the puzzle. And the author continues his exposition of Genesis 14. He's answering the question, why do you need to pay attention to this guy, Melchizedek? What's so great about him? This guy who's made to resemble the Son of God. What makes him so great, so significant? And he goes on from verse 4 and following. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Okay, a lot there. Let's unravel it in four points, all right? Four points. Why is Melchizedek so great? What's so great about Melchizedek? Number one, he received tithes from Abraham. He received tithes from Abraham. Did you see that in verse 6? This man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham. So the priests in the Old Testament, those who were the Levitical priests, uh, they did not receive an inheritance of land like people from the other tribes did, but they did have this command. God had commanded his people to pay tithes, that is a tenth of all their harvest, a tenth of all that they earned, their income was to be paid to the priests to support them. Right? The, the Levites had this command. But here you have, way before the law was given, Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, meeting this man Melchizedek, who's a king priest, and giving him a tenth of everything that he had collected in this war. In fact, as you read the passage, Abraham refuses to gain anything from the king of Sodom, he says, no, I'm not going to enter into any kind of uh, pact with Sodom. But with this man, Melchizedek, Abraham pays him a tithe. And that's very significant because Abraham recognizes his priesthood. Abraham submits himself to Melchizedek. Abraham, father Abraham, who had many sons, the father of the entire Jewish people, is submitting himself and paying a tithe to this Gentile priest-king. That was point number one. Point number two, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. 
Verse 6, he blessed him who had the promises. And then he says in verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So Abraham meets Melchizedek, and Melchizedek, as a priest, pronounces a blessing on this father of the Jewish people, a father of Israel, who had received all God's promises, who was uh, in covenant relationship, was going to be in covenant relationship with God, and Melchizedek pronounces a blessing on him. And the author says it's very simple, verse 7, this is beyond dispute, this is a common sense fact. The lesser is blessed by the greater. Right? I, I know that King Charles III has now ascended to the throne. And you've got to imagine, you know, people coming to pay homage to him. Just imagine if, you know, a little boy were to go to him, or if our brother Sam, who is a, a citizen of the UK, were to go to meet his king and say, God bless you, my son. <laughs> that, that would be very unusual. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't make sense. Right? It's common sense, without dispute. The lesser is blessed by the greater. So he's saying, Melchizedek then has a superiority over Abraham. Next, the Levites die. So we've seen Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, second point. Third, the Levites die, but Melchizedek's death is not recorded. Verse 8, in one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. So you see, the law which commanded the Levites to collect tithes, they had this law by which they collect tithes. Melchizedek, on the other hand, receives tithes from Abraham. And the Levites, what we see throughout Scripture, is they die. There were many, many Levites. Just read the book of Chronicles. They trace the line of the Levitical priests very, very carefully because they want to make sure you know who's a priest. But what's noticeable is all these guys died. The very first high priest, Aaron, his death is recorded for us in Scripture. But in the case of Melchizedek, his death is not recorded. Again, there's a surprising silence there. So in some sense in the story, he continues on like as, if, as though he lives. That's the third reason that makes him great. And then finally, fourth point of Melchizedek's greatness, since Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, so did Levi. Since Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, so did Levi. In a sense. In a sense. Right? So, Abraham is the father of the nation. Levi those who have the priesthood in the tribe of Levi, descended from Abraham. And here Abraham, representing his people, is paying tithes to Melchizedek. This is a very important concept in, in the Bible, is the, the father is the representative. When Adam acts in the garden, he acts on behalf of us all, and he fails. And so Abraham is acting as a representative of his later great-great-grandson. And so, in a sense, Levi also recognizes the supremacy of Melchizedek as a priest. That's the author's point. That's what he's saying here. So what makes Melchizedek so great? Second layer of the puzzle. He was no ordinary priest-king. He was a priest-king greater than Abraham, which is to say he was greater than Levi, Abraham's descendant. And now this will become crucial for the rest of the author's argument. Because you see, the main point of what follows after this is, is this. If Melchizedek was so great, even greater than Abraham, and therefore greater than Levi, that means his priesthood, the order of Melchizedek's priesthood, is greater than the priesthood of the Old Covenant, the Levitical priesthood. Do you get that? Since Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and therefore greater than Levi, the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek is a greater priesthood than the Levitical priesthood of the Old Covenant. And this is vital, you see. This is vital because the people to whom the author is speaking the people who received the, this teaching in Hebrews, what were they tempted to do? 
they were tempted to abandon their faith in Christ as their priest and to go back to the Levitical system, to the Levitical priests. They were facing all these pressures, all this persecution. They had grown lax. And in the midst of that, it's very difficult to keep on believing, keep on trusting in a priest that you cannot see. In a sacrifice that you did not behold with your own eyes. And it's easier to go back to this grand temple that you can worship at with priests in flesh and blood before you where you can even smell the incense and see what these priests are doing. You can see the blood of the animal poured out on your behalf. They want to go back to these things that they can see to be sure, all right, I'm okay with God. You see, that's always a temptation, even for us. Maybe, of course, we're not tempted to go back to a Jewish system of religion. But we are tempted, aren't we, in times of trial especially, to hold on to what we can see with our eyes. What is physically present, rather than to trust and believe in what is unseen. Well, the author wants to open the eyes of their hearts, the eyes of our hearts, to say, behold Christ, the great high priest. You cannot go back. Christ's priesthood is far greater. He has fulfilled all that. That system is complete. His sacrifice is better. Jesus is better and there's no going back. To try and go back to the Levitical system, to the old covenant again, is like going to a restaurant and then you look at the menu. It's fine dining. And then you make your order, and then you wait, and then finally the delicious meal comes out, and as it comes out and is about to place it on your table, you say, no, 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 please take this back, bring me back the menu, I just want to enjoy that. That's how foolish it is to try to go back to the old covenant. And that leads now to our third question and the third step in this puzzle, actually the final step in this puzzle. We've seen who Melchizedek was. We've seen what makes him so great. Now we're going to see why his priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. Why is the Melchizedekian priesthood better than the Levitical Aaronic priesthood? Step three, look at verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Adam? The central text for this section that the author is going to use to help us understand what's going on is Psalm 110. Psalm 110, which we sang right before the sermon. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, which is one of the most often quoted psalms in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ frequently quoted this text and applied it to himself in his disputes with the Pharisees. He talks about himself as the Messiah, and he says the Messiah is not only David's son, he is David's Lord. And he points to Psalm 110, verse 1. Well, our author's favorite verse is Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a key verse for the author of Hebrews. And David here is taking us way back to this guy named Melchizedek in Genesis 14 who disappeared and you don't see him in the story again until 1,000 years later here in Psalm 110 verse 4. And the author's point in verse 11 is this. If the Levitical priesthood is so great, if perfection could have come through the Levitical priesthood, then why does 1,000 years later in the scripture speak of this other priesthood of the order of Melchizedek that's coming? Right? So I've done a little bit of flying this summer and I book my flight, I get my ticket, and then that ticket, I take it, what do you do? You go straight to the airplane and board, right? Show them your ticket, they let you board. Yes? No. The ticket is not enough. What do I need to do? I need to check into my flight. And when I check into my flight, what do I get? 
I get a boarding pass. And the boarding pass is what I need to be able to board my flight. And so we could ask this, if the ticket was enough to board the flight, then why do we need a boarding pass? Right? Why does it ask you to check in? That's the argument that the author is making. If the Levitical priesthood was enough, if the Levitical priesthood could bring perfection, could get you to your destination, then why does the Bible speak of a priesthood that's coming, of a priest of the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110 verse 4? Do you get that? That's the argument he's making. And then he keeps showing us why this Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Number one, the Levitical priesthood could not bring perfection. Otherwise, Scripture wouldn't speak of this other priest that's coming. Next, the Melchizedekian priesthood is not according to a line of descent, but by an indestructible life. It's not by a line of descent, but by an indestructible life. Look at verses 12 to 19. For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we've had a very significant event happen this week, right? Queen Elizabeth II has, di uh, has died. That's the end of her reign. And of course, uh, many in the Commonwealth and our brothers and sisters uh, from Great Britain are uh, grieved by this. She was the longest reigning monarch in British history, 70 years. If you're here and you're younger than 70 years old, she has basically been queen throughout your entire life. She has seen 14 prime ministers come and go. And many have spoken of the dignity with which she held her office, the dignity that she brought to the monarchy, and her faithfulness as monarch over her people. But there was one way that she couldn't serve her people. There was one inherent weakness. She died. Her reign has come to an end. And her son, King Charles, has ascended to the throne, King Charles III. And of course, the, the, you know, just last week there was this chart with all of this. The line of descent is carefully plotted so that you know all the way down to 14th. Who is 14th in line to the throne? You see, nobody can claim, simply claim to be king, right? Pastor Sam can't wake up tomorrow and say, hey, I should be the king of the United Kingdom. It doesn't work that way. Let's, let's have an election to determine the king. No, no, no. It works according to a line of descent. And it was the same in the Old Testament with regard to priests, you see. Nobody could just wake up one morning and say, I think God is calling me to be a priest. No, you had to be born into the family of Levi. Yet we know Jesus wasn't born in the tribe of Levi. Jesus was from the line of Judah, the tribe of kings, not of priests. But he is a priest. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. We know that from Psalm 110 verse 4. And so Jesus' priesthood then is not on the basis of bodily descent. It's not by a legal requirement. No, that legal requirement has been set aside. Instead, he has come like Melchizedek having life in himself, the eternal son of God. He has defeated death by his resurrection. Death could not hold him. He will never die again. And so he functions as a priest forever. Nothing will bring an end to his priesthood. He has become a priest, verse 16, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, you know, you could ask any king in this world, you could ask King Charles III, why are you a king? Or you could ask Levites in the ancient world, why are you a priest? Because I was born in this line. You ask Jesus, how are you a priest? He says, because I live forever. And because God himself has appointed me. 
That's the next reason why his priesthood is superior. He holds his priesthood not merely by a law, but by an oath from God. By an oath from God. Verse 20. It was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So that's the third reason here that Jesus' priesthood of the order of Melchizedek is better than the old priests. The old priesthood could not bring perfection. Jesus holds his priesthood not by bodily descent but by an indestructible life, second. Third, he holds his priesthood not merely by a law but by God's oath. He receives his priesthood by an oath from God. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. God himself, God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the author of history, has taken an oath. He has sworn, in fact, this is the second oath that we see God take in the letter to the Hebrews. We saw one in chapter 6. And here God takes an oath. The God who cannot lie, and the God who does not die, has sworn and has appointed Jesus as a priest forever. And this appointment of Christ as priest forever, dear friends, has great ramifications for you and I. It means that we can be assured that our salvation is secure forever. That nothing can pluck us out of His hands. He remains forever as a priest. No one can displace Him from His office. Nothing and no one can come in the way of God's plan and God's purpose to save you and I. Did you see what it says? It makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. A better covenant from which we shall never fall away. His promises are guaranteed. Why are you a priest? Because I live forever and because God has sworn to me that I shall serve forever as his priest for my people. Finally, why is this priesthood so supreme? Why is it better than the Levitical priesthood? Final argument here that the author makes. His priesthood is not interrupted by death. He continues permanently. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. In the old covenant, the priests were many in number. They were just flawed, sinful, weak human beings like you and I. And they died. They sinned. They had to offer sacrifices for themselves. And they could not continue as priests because they died. Repetition here was not a good thing. It showed their flaw and their weakness. But this priest will never die. He died as a sacrifice for his people. He poured out his blood to save his people. But he has risen from the dead. Death could not hold him. And his priesthood will never be interrupted. He has defeated death and he will never die. And so we see that the priesthood of Jesus in the order of Melchizedek is so much greater than the old covenant Levitical priests. We saw who Melchizedek was. We saw what makes him so great. We've seen why the priesthood of Melchizedek, which our Lord Jesus Christ holds, is greater than the old covenant priesthood. The puzzle is solved. We've been through all steps. The portrait is clear. But what does this portrait reveal? Why is this so important for you and me? That's the fourth question. What are the benefits of this, his priesthood for us, beloved? Three benefits. Three benefits. Number one, salvation. Salvation. Verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Consequently, by virtue of the fact that he is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, who will continue forever, appointed by oath of God, defeated death, indestructible life. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Our great high priest has accomplished salvation for us. No more repetition. You see, the, the old covenant system was built in with this flaw. They, they had to offer sacrifices every day. Continual succession of priests, sacrifices over and over, blood of bulls and goats constantly poured out, sacrifices not only for the people's sins, but for the sins of the priests themselves. That's not how this priest works. It's done once for all. You know, I had some car trouble recently after coming back to the UAE. That meant I had to take the car to Musafa. And there's a lot of repairmen in Musafa. And one of the challenges with the repairmen in Musafa at times is they fix something in your car, but then guess what? You have to come back again next week. And then you got to come back again two weeks later, as Pastor Will has also recently learned. Who's the repairman whom you can trust? It's the guy who fixes it once for all. Friends, Jesus has made a sacrifice once for all. This high priest does not need to repeat his work. All of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our weakness, all of our flaws, we can bring it to him and he says, it is finished. He is holy, innocent, undefiled, no sin in him. He sympathizes with sinners. He is like us, fully human. He understands our weakness, and yet he is separated from sinners because he has no sin in him. He is exalted above the heavens. And the text says he saves to the uttermost. He saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He can save you to the uttermost, fully, completely, in totality. No fear. And so I want to speak to you this morning if you're here. If he's not your high priest, if you have not known this Christ as your savior, know this, that there is more grace in Christ than sin in you. All of us are sinners who have sinned against a holy God. All of us deserve his judgment And we deserve eternal punishment for our sins. But this great high priest has paid the price. He offered himself once for all the perfect sacrifice for sinners. He rose from the dead and he is able to save you to the uttermost if you draw near to God through him. So I want to call you to repent of your sin and draw near to God through this great high priest. Doesn't matter how much you've sinned. Doesn't matter how much you fail. He saves to the uttermost. Not only does our Melchizedekian high priest Jesus provide us with salvation, there's hope in no one else. He provides us with salvation. The second benefit of his office as a priest is intercession. Intercession. Did you see that? He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus intercedes for us. It's a simple way of saying, if you belong to him, brother or sister, Jesus is praying for you. Right now. Oh, what is Jesus doing now? He's praying. What is he praying about? He's praying for you and me. When things are hard, when you get that very difficult phone call that someone you love has died, when life goes topsy-turvy, when everything seems scrambled and you can't discern a pattern, know this. Even when you're being tempted, even when you're failing, that sin you're struggling to defeat, Dear brother or sister, Jesus is praying for you. I mentioned this a few months ago. Joel Beakey says you should think of a a clock. 
I'm, I'm thinking of the clock right now. We've been going long. But think of a clock. And think of the seconds hand of a clock. Think about this. Every time you look at a clock, I know people use digital these days. Think of this every time the, the second ticks over. Tick. Jesus is praying for me. Tick. Jesus is praying for me. Tick. Jesus. Jesus, our great high priest, the Son of God himself, is praying for you. The great high priest who died to save you lives to pray for you, even now. We know the Christian life is so hard. How do we press on? Because Jesus lives to intercede for us. And the final benefit of his priesthood is perfection. Salvation, intercession, perfection. We saw this, verse 11. If perfection was attainable through that old priesthood, through the Levitical priesthood, why is there this other priest in the order of Melchizedek? Verse 19, the author says it straightforwardly. The law made nothing perfect. What does he mean by perfection? He means the fullness, the completion of God's plan. The completion of God's purpose to save sinners, to renew this world, to bring in His glorious kingdom, to raise us from the dead. The Levitical priesthood, the old system, couldn't accomplish that. Nothing in this world can accomplish that. The author summarizes everything he's had to say in verse 28. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus, in his resurrection, has accomplished perfection he has inaugurated God's heavenly kingdom, God's perfect new world. And friends, the fact that He has done that means that if you trust Him, then one day we too will be made perfect. We too will rise in His likeness in a glorious new heavenly world. And so our great high priest stands before you today with arms open wide, he shed his blood to save you. He lives now and prays for you. He will take you home to the end. And he calls to you, come, draw near. Draw near to God through me and find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would draw near through him, that we would not try and hold on to what we can see, but that we would trust in what is unseen, that our high priest is interceding for us even now, and that he will bring us home. It's in his name we pray. Amen.